really a good class today. The story of Israel's existence and survival is a story of alternating bondage and deliverance and bondage and deliverance and around and around we go. And it goes back from Joseph being put into bondage in Egypt and then and then delivering his family and then uh, they needing to be delivered by a strong hand, uh, by Moses, and all of Israel's existence, and in fact, all of our existence, is a series of deliverance and bondage and deliverance and bondage, and it just jumps out at us. Hope you enjoy today's class. This was really impactful and a good way to end uh, a year of classes. Thanks for hopping on board. And welcome to another Monday Morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, Opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within its pages. And now, on to the class. That said, uh, let's go ahead and begin uh, today's class. Um, again, as we've gone through the semester, we finally made it to Alma 36. And <laughs> um, it, it's, it's fun how we do that. Um, now, let's go ahead and I want, I want to start today by, and you guys have, I'm sure at this point you've had classes on this before. I just want to remind you about one of the things that happens with um, trying to understand the scriptures is that you have to understand Hebrew poetry, uh, specifically chiasmus, which is a, a Hebrew poetry is written in a way um, so that you're able to get the, the points of the, the gospel across. I mean, for, how many of you know about chiasmus? Okay, see, some. So, so let me just do a reminder. Um, th there's a variety of them. I'm just going to give you, I'm going to show you three real quickly, and then it'll make Alma 36 make sense. Uh, so much of Isaiah is written in the A-B pattern of, of chiasmus. And what that really means is, here's an example. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. Uh, but, and then there would be a sea, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Okay, But it's going to be, the, the idea with an A-B pattern is foxes and birds and holes and nests. It just repeats. So, and sometimes it's the reverse. So the B is going to be the opposite of A. But Isaiah just goes over and over and over. It's just always repeating a Hebraic uh, pattern. Um, probably the most prominent one, a little bit more uh, developed, is the ABA pattern, uh, which is, it'd be like, 
I run, but find no rest, but run I must. <laughs> okay, so the A-B pattern says the A's are the same, run and run, and then B is where the point is. So B is the is what it's all kind of pointing to. Okay? Uh, so that said, let, let me show you Alma 36. <laughs> That's Alma 36. It is the most complex. The A's are the same, and I'm not going to go through all of this. A's are the same, B's are the same, and it's all pointing, and they're all the same working towards, and then you have to find out what, what everything is pointing towards. In this case, remembering Jesus Christ, the Son of God, oh Jesus, have, have mercy on me, is where all of Alma 36. And it was, uh, it, it was Alma 36 that unlocked for us the idea that uh, the, the Book of Mormon is written in a lot of Hebraic poetry, um, A. And then B, it gives us a chance to see that they, these prophets were writing in a, using Hebraic uh, poetry patterns. And C, Joseph Smith had no idea about chiasmus. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way that he was going to know this stuff. Uh, and uh, this was actually uh, discovered on his mission by a uh, BYU professor that has since kind of, it's unlocked and enabled us to see a lot of things in, in the Book of Mormon. So, is that amazing? Yeah. That missionary was interesting. He was serving a German mission. Yeah. And he had read Alma 36 many times, but it was because of the way it lined up in the German language that he was able to see it more clearly. See it, and I'm thinking, isn't that a lot like us? Sometimes we read the same thing over and over again. And yeah, I wouldn't have picked up on that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool. All right, so so that that's what that looks like. But so again, if you really don't have a whole lot to do and you want to spend a lot of time digging through, you can look at the you look at the pattern. We're not going to do that, but I want you I want you to just get a flavor of where this goes. So uh, before I look at that, I'm so let's hop over to the very first part of Alma. 36, and and we got to remember that this is Alma uh, talking to his son Helaman, and and this is right after their experience with the with the Zoramites and the the parable of the seed and all that, and then he's going to say, "My son, give ear to my words, for I swear unto you that inasmuch as you shall keep the commandments of God, you shall prosper in the land." Then he's going to say, all right, I would that ye should, as I have done. Now, he's going to talk about how do you prosper? What does prosper look like? Um, but it's interesting where he goes with this. He's going to say, I would that ye have done in remembering the captivity of our fathers, for they were where? In bondage. And none could deliver them, save it was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and he surely did deliver them out of their afflictions. 
So he's going to give us a hint. Part of prospering is that we have to remember the bondage of our ancestors. Okay? Now, let, let me hop out of here for just a second. Um, because this is exactly, this idea of remembering the bondage of our ancestors is exactly what Pesach, Passover, for, for Jews is all about. Why is this night different from any other nights? You know, what is it that we're doing when we partake of a Passover Seder? The Passover meal. Okay? So, uh, let's see. Brent was able to get us into our Passover Seder the other night. Uh, this is the, the Haggadah that they use that, the, uh, the liturgy, the text about how you do that. But I, but I want to... Um, you know, we start at the back because it's in Hebrew, right? Uh, let me tell you how this... Let me, let me show you a couple of things from this. It gives you an idea of how it starts. Uh, and the thing that I love is that this is a Messianic uh, synagogue and you guys were there. So these are guys that have that are very, very Jewish, but they're also very, very Christ-centered. And, and so a Messianic meaning that this is Jewish and we believe that uh, it all points towards Christ. Um, the funny thing is, is that Alma was a Messianic Jew <laughs> way back, way, way back when, right? Blessed are you, O, o Lord our God, who, who sanctifies time as instructed us to set aside this hour to do what? To recall our slavery. To, our, our exodus from Egypt and our calling to do what? To proclaim our deliverance. Isn't that cool? They're saying here is the reason why we're going to do the Passover. To recall our slavery, our exodus from Egypt, and our calling. We have a specific calling to explain our deliverance. Okay. Now, if you think about it, uh, what is what is testimony meeting on our best days? <laughs> Shouldn't we be proclaiming our deliverance? Uh, we should be, right? Um, uh, I'll just, uh, I, I've been telling you guys that this thing was coming a little bit, uh, and Brent had a chance to be part of this. Uh, we had a, uh, an interesting sacrament meeting yesterday where we had a baptism on Saturday, and then on Sunday, uh, we, we uh, recognized that, that our, our guy had been baptized. Um, and we welcomed him as a member of the ward. And then Brent, as a matter, matter uh, part of the high council, got up and, and got permission to do what? We, we had him sustained to receive the Melchizedek, which ordained an elder. Yes, which we then promptly did right in the middle of the sacrament meeting. Yes. Yes, isn't that interesting? Right after his... Yes. Okay. Um, and you go, well, that's different. Well, yes, it was. Okay. At his baptism on Saturday, he spoke at length about the fact that he had been raised in the church. He left when he was 14. He was gone for a decade. If any of you had gone to general conference 
during that period of time, you might have seen him preaching to people going to conference. He became a part of a very kind of a, a, an evangelical driven uh, anti-Mormon group. Uh, and he was very vociferous about that. And he was very well learned in all of that. Okay, Then he moves to Texas and he just and, and he told his story on Saturday. There's this inkling of I really don't know that much about the Mormon church. Uh, I know what to attack. But, for the, but he says, I never read the Book of Mormon. So he, reads the book, he starts reading the Book of Mormon. And then he hits Alma 32. And it goes... <laughs> Maybe. They're, wow. And he said he was just blown away by Alma 32. And so now he starts to study in more seriousness uh, and he's been studying and he's been attending with us in since October okay we started having him play the organ for us in church uh, a couple months ago he did have his, his records right they were officially removed he wasn't ever excommunicated but but what happened is uh, Shortly after he was, right after he was baptized on Saturday, the state president restored his Aaronic priesthood. So then we were able to then ordain him to the Melchizedek priesthood yesterday. Okay, great story. The prodigal has returned. Yeah. So I've never heard of that. So Kevin, when the state president restores the Aaronic priesthood, is that somewhat of an ordinance laying on our hands? Or what would that look like? Brent, you know, I wasn't there for that. I, I, I think I think he just stated it in some ways. I don't know that there's a, you know, by the power of the Holy Ghost, uh, you know, I restore your... Maybe there is. I, I'm not aware. Uh, other than the fact that he, he had received the Aaronic priesthood when he was 12, and now even though he'd had his records removed from the church, the assumption was is that he still, at some level, held the Aaronic priesthood. He still received it. And he still received it at 12. So now, what needed to be happened? Uh, he needed to be baptized. He was. That uh, was restored. And then he was... Okay. And guess what he did on Saturday? Proclaimed his deliverance. I'm so grateful that God has been merciful to, to me. I had to be... He says, I had to be humbled. And, he, and part of what he liked about Alma 32 is it says, sometimes we are compelled to be humble. He says, I was compelled to be humble. By his circumstance, by the knowledge that was coming to... I was compelled. I had no choice. Yeah, right. And so then he bore his testimony... Uh, just before his baptism, that he had he had a testimony in the Book of Mormon. He had a testimony now of Joseph Smith. Uh, he said he was an inspired man. He was a flawed man. The more I studied, the more I see the flaws, and the more I see he was inspired. Both, okay. And he proclaimed his deliverance, which I thought was just fascinating. Okay, just really a moving experience. Now, part of what happens is you, you work your way through the Passover. Um, going to hold up the matzah bread. This is the bread of affliction, which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Now, at this moment, we are here. Next year, may we be, ba- may we be in the land of Israel. Yeah. Yay. Now we are slaves. Next year, 
we will be truly free. We're free because we made it back. We made it to the promised land. We're going to proclaim our deliverance. Okay? And then it says, where are we now? We're here in ancient Egypt. We hold up the matzah. We imagine we're going back in time and becoming slaves. We're tired and hungry. And we have to eat quickly while we're forced to work. We are still waiting for our final deliverance. So part of what happens in a Passover is they want to be put in a setting of saying, let's begin with the idea that we are slaves. And we're waiting for our, for our deliverance. Um, now, I want to walk through though, because in a sense, I think, my belief is, I think this is what, part of where <coughs> Alma is going. So these are, these are Israelites, and they're going to talk about their deliverance, okay? Well, let's, let's recount the story here, shall we? And see, see, if, see if all this makes sense. The story about deliverance from Egypt begins 400 years earlier, okay? Where a father chooses a favored son over the other, over his brothers, okay? And those brothers become jealous. Now, interestingly enough, in this story, especially in the Old Testament, the older brothers are always older and the favored son is always younger that's fascinating to me okay but Joseph in a sense was treated as the firstborn because he was the firstborn of Rachel right but there were brothers older than him so the firstborn is chosen over older brothers just kind of put that somewhere in your head so the older brothers become jealous then what happens well they're going to choose to sell their brother into bondage into slavery okay and they're going to send him down into a world of idol worship and they're going to remove his robe his his uh, royalty his chosenness they're going to remove the robe and then they're going to sell him down and he goes down into a world of idol worship. Okay? How are we doing so far? Interesting, huh? Okay, well, let's, I don't know, let's, let's follow the story. Let's see where this goes. What happens next? Well, while he's there, the son grows in power and influence due to his vision and compassion. And he works out a way to actually save the people he was sold into bondage to. Now, by the way, does he have to pass through temptation? Yes. Sure. Where even his earthly robe is removed. I think that's interesting. There's a, there's a, it's pretty laden with metaphor and, and symbolism. Therefore, the sun, the sun grows in power and influence due to his vision and compassion. Then what happens? Well... Meanwhile, his, his family is facing death. Without his help, they're going to die due to the drought, the lack of, right? So the family is facing death due to drought. Then they are invited down into that world 
come down into Egypt, they're come down into the world, and they are ultimately saved according to the insight of the son that was sold into Egypt, sold into this land of idol worship. His efforts saved them as well. Okay? Interestingly enough, though, part of what happens for this family that comes in to Egypt, and what do they discover? They are amazed to find that he that was dead is now alive. He lives. And, And he is now the means of their salvation. And shouldn't he have been mad at them for sending them down into he could have what does he do he says don't be afraid just the Lord sent me here to save your life yes I had to come I had to come down here to save your life don't, don't worry about it this was part of the plan that I would come and save you and they're surprised they thought he was dead but it turns out that he's actually alive. Okay? All right. Yeah. Did, did they really think he was dead? I know they told his father that they found his bloody coat. They yeah, the father did. The lamb bloody the coat to cool down. Yeah. They knew they'd sold him as a slave. Yeah. Of course, they didn't know. Did he make it? Did he survive? But certainly dad believed he was dead. And they sold a good story, right? He tore it coat in half and everything. Uh, images of the title of liberty that kind of come into the torn coat, right? All right. Okay, so that the end of the story. Well, no. The story just goes on, guys. What comes next? Well, in the years to come, their adopted world first sustains them, kept them alive, loved them, gave them land, and then slowly places them in bondage. The, the Pharaoh was jealous of their growing power. So what does he do? Well, we're going to slowly make them slaves. They came in free, but then they become enslaved to the actions of the world that they're living in. Okay? So, any of this sounding familiar? Now, wasn't there also a regime change on the Egyptian side as well? Yeah, so a Pharaoh, a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. But he also looked around and said, A, uh, they're really growing powerful. And B, uh, I need a really good pyramid to be buried in. <laughs> and I've got, I, I've got uh, slave labor <laughs> that I can do this. Okay. By the way, it also worked for the Colosseum in Rome. <laughs> slave, work, slave labor works really well. Um, okay. So now what happens? Well, they cry out for deliverance. We need to be delivered. We are, in, we are enslaved. We are enslaved and we can't do anything about it. As of our own efforts, we don't have the ability to get us out of bondage. What do we need? Savior. We need a Savior. We need a Deliverer. Somebody. But first of all, we have to recognize we're in bondage. And we have to proclaim that we are in bondage. They cry out for deliverance. So what happens? God raises a deliverer to rescue them. So they are rescued only by God's mighty works and sacrifice. 
it takes a, a, an outstretched arm and power to bring them out of slavery and bondage into deliverance. Okay? Alright? Now, what comes next? Well, now we're going to come out of bondage and deliverance, but now how do, do you know how to live after being slaves? After being in bondage, do you know how to regulate your life? And do you know how to make it, do you know how to prosper in the land? Well, no. So what's the next thing that happens? They go straight from Egypt to where? The wilderness. The wilderness, and, uh, and they go through the wilderness on the way to where? To Sinai. Because what, what are they going to get in Sinai? The law. We need the law. Okay? And the idea too for Moses was, Moses was seeking to say, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, out of bondage, and I want to have you have direct communication with God. So, guys, come on up the mountain and let's have direct communication with God. And Exodus says that the people said what? Oh, I don't think so. (laughs) The fire scares us. The smoke scares us. The thunder scares us. You go tell us how it goes. (laughs) And he goes, all right, then I will give you... In fact, we're going to hang on. He took the people out of the land of idols, but he didn't get the idols out of their heart because they still wanted to rely on their idleness. So it was going to be a long journey by which I'm, I'm giving you the law, but we're trying to use the law to get you past your love of idols. Ooh, hard battle, right? Okay, now, so they're given laws to follow. So as a result of this journey to clear the idols out of their heart, they have to endure personal hardship while traveling back to the promised land, which is where they started in the first place. So in a sense, what's happened is they started in the promised land. In order to be saved, they went down into this world of idols. They picked up all this stuff. It took a deliverer to get them back out. But, but you're bringing that back and it's going to take a while before you're actually able to enter in to the promised land. Okay? Isn't that cool? Look familiar? This is, it's all here. The, the whole story here is here that if you look at it. And th- that's why I'm touched when I look at, at uh, Pesach as I look at Passover. And I'm, I'm really touched by the idea of our calling is to proclaim our deliverance. We should be telling people, I have been delivered. Our gratitude towards the Savior is that we have been I was I was in bondage now I'm free. Okay so it's about it's all the entire plan of salvation is about bondage and and deliverance. It, it is the core message that runs through it like a river. Okay? Come in. Yeah. Yeah, 400 years. So, you know, they could have left sooner when the drought was over and gone back home. Ooh, that's a good question. It must have been pretty good for a long time for them to stay. I would, you know, why? Or was it too much trouble to move back? (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
Why do you think they didn't leave? Because I think that's a great question. Because we all, the drought only lasted what seven years. Okay, Brent, why do you think they? Agricultural people in Mile River Delta is the place. Gorgeous. Easy life. Yes. Had everything they wanted. And I'll bet you that transition was so gradual. I mean, you look at what's going on politically in our country today. Things change so gradually but so surely that before you know it, it's gone. Yeah, right. So like the frog in the top. Kind of. But, but in this case, I mean, they're going from, if you look at where they, where they came from, it wasn't necessarily the upper Galilee that was really rich. They're coming from more Judea, where it's more desert. Now they're going to go to the River Delta area of, and, and the gold and the opulence and the, and the educational stuff. And, the, I mean, they're just, this world had an awful lot to offer people. Just the advanced civilization. And they were loved on. You know, while the Pharaoh knew Joseph and knew Jacob's family, they were put in a great area, great stuff. Okay, so it is. It's a gradual process by which ultimately the creep of the world as it gets worse infiltrates everything. And by then, frog in the, in the boiling water were trapped. Yeah. I'm thinking too, it's your family. You get, you stay there and your parents become old but your kids I loved having my kids around so yeah, yeah. your family grows and grows and you want them by you so you don't want to leave but your parents are still there and they don't want to go because they're older I'm like I don't know about where it's harder so then the kids are like well I'll stay with you <laughs> well and after hundreds of years right. it's like it's a huge they are in, in a lot of ways they are they are Jewish by lineage right they're Israelite but what are they religiously? Egyptian. They're more. They're probably more Egyptian than they are anything Israelite. Because remember, before that point, remember they're living in Egypt and they have they have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's teachings. But the law of Moses hasn't been given yet. There's no Passover. There's no Sukkot, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also a remembrance of coming out of deliverance. Okay, so they're in some ways they're more Egyptian than they are. So this is our people. We are, we are Egyptian. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure their, their kids are running around t-shirts saying, I wasn't born in Egypt, but I came as soon as I could. <laughs> One of the lessons I've kind of taken away from this for myself is how Satan, fog symbol, uh, do, how worldly do we become? How, where am I? Yeah. Story today. Do my temple covenants mean far more to me than the riches of the world, or yeah. my keeping up with the Joneses, or whatever? I think the story is really applicable to us. It is, isn't it? Satan just doesn't let us go. No, no. And, and think about it too. When we think about our, because we talked a couple of weeks about ago about our responsibility in the world and what we bring to the world. Well, think about Joseph when he first shows up. Joseph shows up into this world and betters it. He doesn't have to wall himself off from Egypt. There's a lot going on in Egypt. But he spots where the problems are and he brings vision and deliverance and compassion. And he saves this world. So the question is, are we influencing the world or is the world influencing us? And I think that's always the question because we need to be, the world needs us. The world needs restoration theology. 
but we have to be willing to take it out there. Um, I was listening to, to something this morning talking about the fact that the more we love, the more we risk. That true discipleship is a risk. Marriage is a risk. <laughs> you know, anytime we're going to make commitments or we're going to love somebody, we do it at a sense of risk. And if we're going to take care of somebody or we're going to stand for something, we do it at a sense of risk. Okay? So, so there is this sense of then saying, we have, to, we have to bring what we have to the world and change them, but we risk being laughed at or all of that kind of thing, right? Okay? All right. Yeah? Originally, you said about prospering in America, and I hope I'm not the only one, but whenever I hear that, my first thought at first was money. We're talking about financial things. And, and then probably when the, Egyptian, uh, the Israelites got there, prospering was being alive. It was being, you know, they weren't starving anymore. That's what pro- that, yes, that's a good point. So, Prospering means we're not dead. <laughs> live to see another day. And we can raise our families, whatever. Right. Is what she was saying. As you get in, saying if you're in a place that's very uh, like our country here, most people live, so we, even the poorest of us live better than most of the people in the world. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, prospering to us is having things, being able, not worrying about money. It's true. Well, thank you for that. Because um, he's back to Alma thirty six. He defines it for us. Now he says. Um, I want you to prosper in the land. Now, in order to prosper, I need you to do as I have done, remembering the captivity of our fathers that they were in bondage. Okay, by the way, let me stop. When Alma says the bondage of our fathers, who is he referring to? He's going to say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, so Egyptians, children of Israel. Who else? Syria, Babylonian. The Assyrian Babylon, yeah. Come on, this is Alma. What happened to his father? What would happen to Alma the older? Noah, and they were in bondage. And they had to be brought out of bondage, spiritual bondage, first of all, with Alma. And then they get to the land of Helam, and they baptize. Then they get put under bondage again and they need to be delivered again. How? By a strong arm and miraculous thing. They make it from Helam to Zarahemla. Okay? Is that the only bondage of their fathers? Lingman and Lemuel were pretty intense. Yes. But they had to be delivered from where? Jerusalem. Oh, there too, yeah. Lehi. That's why I say when he talks about... Uh, remembering the captivity of our fathers, he's got Moses, he's got Lehi, he's got his father. I mean, there are a series of, when I, when I say to you the whole story of the Book of Mormon, but all the, whole, the whole story of the plan of salvation is bondage and deliverance, and bondage and deliverance, and bondage and deliverance. And then we take a look at ourselves and we go, how am I doing in my life? 
bondage and deliverance and bondage and deliverance. Okay? How'd I do last month? Well, bondage and deliverance. You know, it's just like over and over and over. Okay? And and the Lord's saying to you, I know you struggled, but I'm going to forgive you how many times? Like 70 times 7, probably for the same sin. <laughs> it's always bondage and deliverance. That's what forgiveness is. That's what repentance is. That is... Okay? All right. So, he's going to say... Uh, I would you remember uh, the captivity Helaman he's declaring to his son uh, remember the captivity of our fathers now look at what he's going to describe as here's part of what gives us deliverance this is what what comes in verse 3 for I do know that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials to say rescued from their trials not supported in your trials. Sometimes your shoulders are made strong. Supported in your trials and their troubles and their afflictions and be lifted up when? Last day. Sometimes deliverance takes a while. 400 years sometimes for the, for this to happen. Okay? Um, now, how's he going to do this? How do you know that you get to this part? He says, well, hmm. What, what did it take for me to be delivered? Well, he says, the good news is, is that I'm delivered because I was born of God. And if I hadn't have been born of God, I wouldn't have known these things. But God, uh, by the mouth of who? Holy prophet, or holy angel is going to teach me some things. So how did Alma's deliverance come? By an angel. Okay? Now, I think each one of us, as we sit here, we could say, okay, do I feel like I have been delivered? Yeah. Who's your angel? (laughs) Who, Who is the angel in your life that brought you deliverance? Yeah. You know, I remember very distinctly being, uh, given when we moved, I remember distinctly probably being uh, six or seven or eight, something like that, on a summer day. And I remember just sitting, doing, I was drawing something, I think, at the kitchen table. And my mom is over cooking at the stove. And she goes, all of a sudden, and, I, and I've always remembered this for whatever reason, she goes, you know, I have a hard time understanding. And I'm like, what? And she goes, I don't understand why the Nephites, after everything they've been taught, still wouldn't keep the commandments and, and they had to be destroyed by the Lamanites. Oh. You know? Here's my mom cooking. She's just doing her thing. She's got her son sitting there, and that's where she goes. See? Who's your angels? Who, who, are, the, who are the ones that, uh, as you're growing up, or who are the ones that, that imparted stuff to you that is going to teach you that you, can't, that you need to be delivered and you can be delivered and how deliverance works? I just think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. This may sound like a really 
odd example. Uh-huh. I don't know if you like odd example. I like odd example. Um, my childhood was abusive, and one of the things that brought me joy growing up, my grandmother, my mother's mother, passed away about 10 years before I was born when my mother was 13. And there were so many times I could feel her literally sitting next to me or standing mm. next to me. And it brought me a lot of that comfort that this would one day pass and that you can overcome this and that you can do better. And I got so familiar with her that even pictures that I had never seen before, I could pick her out of the crowd. And I've talked to my siblings and a lot of them felt similar. I don't think any of them are strong as me. So when you talk about an angel, sometimes it's someone physical that is there for you. Sometimes it's an aunt or a friend there. But sometimes I think our progenitors, our, our uh, progenitors, our ancestors, that they mm -hmm. are watching out for us. Absolutely. You know, we're her grandchildren and knew we were suffering at the hands of her daughter because she wasn't there, you know, to help her. And I think that she really felt, you know, a watchful eye. And she's someone that I'm super anxious to meet. Wow. Yeah, so that's why I've always believed. Um, we were talking about genealogy earlier. Um, I'm one, this may sound really strange, I don't necessarily believe in a uh, spirit of Elijah. Here's what, I, here's what I think. If you have people on the other side of the veil and you start doing their work, where in the universe would they be? Uh, yes. So, so when we see, sometimes people talk about the spirit of Elijah as like a driving force and it keeps me awake and I have to do this stuff. If they're in the universe and you're doing your genealogy, where, where would they be? <laughs> How you feeling? <laughs> it's like, okay, I feel the urgency. I'll go. I'll, I'll get up and I'll go do this. Kind of thing that I. I just think that the spirit of Elijah is them. And they are they are, and they are urging. We're feeling their presence that's pushing us and driving us. Yeah, yeah. For those of us that know about the temple, we no longer say who is dead, and there's a reason for that. They're not dead. Yeah, they're and there. That was what we were taught when the, in the preparation meeting in the temple for temple workers. They're not dead, so we no longer say that. I didn't know that. That's, that's, that's really cool. No, get, get, say that again. So in the temple, the temple ordinance has been changed. That throughout the temple, we no longer say in the ordinances who is dead. And in preparation meeting, which is the meeting as a worker, we attend 
and where we, where we are instructed again and again on the ordinances, if you go, you will notice in, in everywhere ordinance you participate in, we no longer tell you who is dead. And the reason they gave us is they they're, they're not dead. dead. That's right. When they told us that, as a director of the Family History Center in Richardson, I absolutely burst out in tears. I'll bet you did. Oh my gosh. That's cool, isn't it? But at that point, who is their at that point who is their angel? Well, it's it's us. Okay, we do, we're not saving them, but we are the angel to bring them knowledge of their deliverance, so that the Savior can heal them. That that's awesome. That's very cool. All right. So so what you start to see here in Alma 36, though, is this process of how do we become delivered? How does delivery work? But part of delivery is also you have to recognize that you're in bondage. <laughs> um, now, I find it fascinating, uh, and, and I actually had this... I don't think I put this on my slides. Um, oh, yeah, let's, for just a second, let's hop back. Uh, this, is, this is Alma 30. Remember... Remember what it is when Korahor comes into town and he's making, he's making a number of accusations, right? One of Korahor's accusations was that no man can know anything which is to come. That's a, you, you do not know. You can't know. Now, we know that Alma's response to no man can know, Alma's response is, is Alma 32, he changes it from, we're not going to talk about what you know and what you don't know. We're going to talk about what's real. You're going to plant this seed, like our friend that was rebaptized. The seed got planted, and, and he had to look at it, and he has an analytical mind, and he wanted to prove it, whether it was right or wrong. And so while he was busy paying attention, trying to figure out what Joseph Smith did or what the church believes or something like that, he reads Alma 32, and he gets this... He says it's like he got kind of hit in the heart kind of thing. And he had to say this, I may not understand everything with Joseph Smith, but I know this is real. This is true. This is, I'm feeling some things that I've never felt before. As opposed to when I was a snot-nosed 14-year-old and my parents were stupid and I'm out of here. <laughs> right? Uh, and so Alma's trying to say, what is real? And you bypass what's true. What are you experiencing? And how does it taste? Well, it tastes good. You're tasting the fruit of the tree of life. Okay? Now, here's the other accusation, though. And boy, does this echo from the pre-existence all the way down to now. Ye say that this is a free people. Behold, I say they are what? In bondage, he's going to take he's going to take this this idea of uh, freedom and bondage. He turns it around. He says that this people that have accepted the gospel, I'm going to say that they are in bondage because they, they durst not enjoy their rights and privileges. They're not free. I'm coming in to try and free the people. I am the deliverer. 
of this people in bondage. Now, so often those that are attacking the church say, what about Mormons? We're in a cult, right? We're controlled. We are in bondage to what we've been taught, to our traditions, to our beliefs. We are in bondage. And we're going to help you be free. Free to... Uh, if you think about the, kind of the whole sexual revolution, it was all built on the idea, I want to have as much sex as I want to have with whoever I want to have it, and there needs to be no consequences at all, ever. That's what the whole abortion debate is about. I want to not have any consequences to me having sex with whoever I want, how much as I want. I want to be free. It's my body. I want to be free to do whatever I want to do with it. And any religion is going to come along is going to do what? Put me in bondage. It's going to tell me you can't do that. And that's really what Korahor is doing. He's going, you say this is a free people. They've been freed from bondage. No, they're in bondage. And he say, and you guys did it by your traditions, by your beliefs. Okay? I don't know. I might, if I was one of those Israelites sat, sitting in the Mount of Mount Sinai, you know, and they're coming, and here comes the law of Moses, and it's giving all of the dietary laws. I might have been going, so there's no ribs. <laughs> no, 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 no pork ribs, really. No, no pork loin. No, no. No bacon? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, you're. Oh, that's not. Why would I? Why would I join a cultish religion that says I can't? I can't eat bacon. Oh, shrimp. Oh, and shrimp and lobster. Oh, oh man. It's okay. Have hummus instead. <laughs> Am I having to choose between ribs and hummus? Oh, man. I think I will be free to go eat pork. How's, how's the other really? Oh, Canaanites are eating pork. Okay, I'll go join them. Okay, anytime we're going to get these restrictions, uh, you, you know, we had, we had this in a preparation for temple class yesterday. Going, we can't drink tea? <laughs> tea? Even iced tea? Tea extract? Come on. I can say before you go join the Canaan, just remember that in that day, pork had a disease called trichinosis. Oh, yeah. Which was a bad thing if you ate the flesh of pork. Yeah, I know. But at that point, I almost wouldn't care. See, it's like, which side of the Galilee am I going to be on? Am I going to be on the Jewish side over here? Or I'm going to be over in the ten cities of the Gentiles over here where they've got swine herds and barbecue. (laughs) There are choices that have to be made here. Brisket. Brisket if it's done right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. So... So how do you how do you say to somebody? Yes, we keep the command. We're a wisdom, you know. Are you free to go enjoy a beer 
after a hot day, you know? How do we explain to people that living the word of wisdom or the living the laws of the gospel is not bondage? Because in a sense we're being told you are free but you can't use that freedom. And by the way, and you can't get into the temple if you're can can a cup of coffee keep me out of the out of the celestial kingdom? Well, answer that. That's kind of stupid. How about two earrings? Can I, I don't know. We talk a lot about the help of the people in Utah. <laughs> They're not in bondage to medical procedures. Addiction stuff. To the same degree as people that mm-hmm. live Yeah. Well, how about... But think about it. If, if you... Right now, if you left the church, though, wouldn't you get a 10% raise and Sunday's off? <laughs> <laughs> There's there some advantages here. I've heard that liquor is awfully expensive. What's that? I've heard that liquor is awfully expensive. <laughs> it can be very expensive, right? I with your friends and they wanted to buy it. Yeah. Even it's like, no, no. Just a thought. You keep saying you are accused of being in bondage. Yeah. And, and I would say I hope they're right because we believe that the Lord is going to be our king. Yeah. We want to be in bondage to him. Yeah, because we, I, I, we when we start messing with the semantics on this, we say, no, I'm obedient. When, when, you, when you go to the temple, do you make covenants? Do the covenants place you in bondage about what you can do and what you can't do? So there is a sense that says, now, by the way, if I want to run a marathon, don't I have to put my body in bondage? <laughs> Some things I can eat and can't eat. Some things I have to do where it's going to be uncomfortable. But in order to grow, in order to be disciplined, I've got to put myself under some kind of restrictions and covenants. But depending on how you twist it, now it becomes, no, you're in bondage. I want to eat whatever I want to eat as much as I want to eat it. <laughs> With no consequences. Yeah. Yeah, that's me too, but... <laughs> oh, I thought you were just agreeing with me. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So those of us who have lived on the other side comprehend, maybe not all of us, but I comprehend the difference between being in bondage and how uh, living in living with covenants frees me from bondage. Furthermore, which just sounds weird, right? It does sound weird. By keeping, by holding myself to something, I'm actually freed from bondage. That's right. Like, it's an oxymoron. Yeah. A really extreme situation would be like a drug addiction. Yeah. Where you're entirely, you're entirely in bondage to that. You're throwing all your resources toward it, not even thinking about resources. The bottom line is you're spending all your money on it, right? Yeah. And then, and then to dry out is a is a is a situation which is not only a release from that bondage, but recognition of our free will. We choose to do what we want. Uh, and then, you know, paying attention to the fact that it's a really good strategic decision, you know, to prepare ourselves to, to live in the celestial kingdom. Right. Right. To become a person who can endure that. Right. So in a sense, though, isn't it interesting that that under this thing when he says they they enjoy their rights and privileges they do have their free agency but they but they're not free to choose the consequences of it yeah that in other words we need to understand that without covenants without commitments without obedience we can use our agency but it's going to put us and and I'm trying to remember I think 
the bottom of 36, I think... Verse 27. And think about this is the chiasmus. You can see that, that this is actually the correlating to like verse 2. I have been supported under trials and troubles of every kind in a manner of afflictions, and God has delivered me from prison and from bonds and from death. I do put my trust in Him, and He will still deliver me. Um, and part of what he's going to say is that when I was going about trying to destroy the church, I was free to do so, but not free to escape the consequences. That one day, that one of the consequences for him was that when he realized what he was doing, how painful it was what he had been doing to other people. Yeah. I think it, if you look at the word of wisdom as only as a right now thing, yeah. you don't have a spiritual goal. Yeah. It, you know, you might say, it just looks restrictive, doesn't it? But, but if you think about it, I can remember in the 60s, my father was diagnosed in 1960s with an ulcer. And he was not a member of the church, but he was told he should not smoke, drink, or have coffee or tea. That's what doctors used to tell. Yeah. Because it wasn't good for him. And, and it was, in other words, if you want to feel better, you won't do these things. And I, I always felt the word of wisdom, yeah, it's wonderful. I, you can't ever win an argument or a discussion or whatever you want to call it with anybody about the health thing. Because then they're going to take about some 90-year-old man who's they will. all his life and drank whiskey. And all right. You see, that's, you know, that's fine if it happens. But it's a spiritual thing. If your eye is on the prize, and that's not my prize that I get to have iced tea or whatever, um, I don't, you don't even think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Don't think that you're giving up because you're really not. Drink something else. Yeah, yeah, but 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 you're right. When when our vision is not seeing things a long way off, we just see now. I'm just having to decide: uh, do I eat carrots or ice cream? <laughs> you know, I want to be able to do what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm free to eat those foods. Oh, that's a good way to put if it. I want to. Sure. But if I do, well, I end up in the hospital. You, you pay a price for it, but at the moment, you, it, it would taste good if you ate it, wouldn't it? I don't know. Most of the life around our office consists of me bringing in food into the office and Wendy going, no, I can't eat that. <laughs> I can't eat that. I would like that, but I'll pay for it later. Yeah. You know, there's always this delayed thing. So you're right. We have sometimes our bodies put us under bondage to certain things. Okay. Most of the Book of Mormon is written. If you if you look about it, the the thing that the prophets keep saying to the people of the Nephites is like, uh, you're free to choose, but then Satan is going to slowly wrap you with what does he call it? Flaxen cords. I love that word. It's like a very soft rope. (laughs) And that soft flaxen cords turn into what? Chains of hell. (laughs) 
you know, the frog in the in the boiling water kind of thing. It starts off soft, and then it slowly, gradually gets harder, as it turned out to be for the the Israelites in Egypt. Okay. Yes. You know, going through this whole discussion, it just seems to me that the only real choice we have to make is which of those two plans we're presenting we're going to follow. Yeah. And everything else is a subset of that original choice. So we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to follow. Do you think that was part of the discussion in the uh, pre-existence? Where it's like, you want to be, f- you know, if you want to look at what Korahor was saying, you want to be free to do whatever you want, or do you want to hold yourself to what you can't do? If it was about freedom, now you got your agency. Why not be able to go do whatever you want to do? But you are. You're free to go choose. Yes. But that doesn't mean you won't pay the price. Yes. Or have the joy and happiness that comes with being. Well, and and in a sense, so if we if we come all the way back, all the way to the top here, if you're going to prosper in the land, prosper means in this case that I I'm free to enjoy joy. I'm free to enjoy lack of shame. I'm free to enjoy. Those kind of things, but the nice the thing about the Korahor side of the equation is you can do what you want to do now, but you just pay for it later. Well, I see with my own children who have left the church, I can see the life that has left their eyes. Yeah, and it, it hurts. Yeah, but they feel like they are free now. They're not under any bondage of the gospel. They can do whatever they want. Oh, and you hear that. You hear that over and over and over in the in the social media stuff that I look at. It's like a sense of freedom. I was a, They told me what I couldn't do, and now I'm free. Yeah. yeah. But you can see the joy's gone from their eyes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any other thing else on this? I just think the more I was thinking about deliverance and bondage and bondage and deliverance and it just this ongoing cycle that I think we're going to struggle with all of our life. Yeah. Just a thought on that joy and that concept there. I mean, Warren said this is my work and my joy. Great class in mortality. He's here to make us happy. Yeah, that's the that's the. And I think the good test for what's going on in the world today is does it make people happy? There's probably very few of any causes around that have an unworthy goal. But it's the implementation, the process, and the impact it has on those that choose to follow various groups. Does it make them happy? Does it make them unhappy? Boy, I think that's true. And I think that's a good measure of how much of the gospel, how much of the light of Christ is involved in whatever program you're looking at. If you, if you want to read a, uh, an interesting book, it's now dated a little bit. She's written a couple of new books since then, but, it's, but the original book is still really good. It's a book by Gene uh, Twinge called The Me Generation. And, and the, the byline to it says, why today's generation is the, is the, the wealthiest, uh, most uh, uh, capable uh, most uh, enabled group in history and the most miserable. <laughs> that that uh, I'm I'm surprised every time that 
that when we travel and, and we see these amazing sights in the world and always in front is going to be those that are doing their selfies and posing while they, uh, while they do that. You know, you've got to put your hand on your hip in the right way. And, <laughs> and the funny thing is that they're, they're standing in front of the magnificent temple at Chichen Itza, but they're not looking at the Chichen Itza temple. What are they looking at? Themselves. So it's about me, and I'm just I'm just amazed. Uh, I'm trying to think where we were the other night, and I saw somebody doing. Oh, we were at Bucky's, <laughs> and we were just coming out of Bucky's, and there there was some gal really dressed in night. <laughs> and you see her just trying to set it up. It's a, so so now now we've become a nation of selfies, uh, and it's about me, and it's about me, and it's about me. Um, and uh, in fact, I'll finish with this. I had a uh, I heard a comic talking the other day, and he said when he talks to uh, he says we're raising the worst generation of old people that will ever walk the earth. <laughs> He says, when I listen to my grandma and stuff like that, you know, he says, here's a picture of me with Charles Lindbergh, you know, (laughs) and here we are, the building of the Empire State Building, you know, and stuff like that. And he says, this generation is going, and here was lunch. was the steak I cooked <laughs> and here here was me in front of the mirror in my bathroom yes <laughs> and a great stories to tell and it's about me it's always going to be about me yeah coming from this generation yes ma'am you go girl school um I think we're living in a world where technology is so much different than 50 years ago, you know, where all the acceptance comes from technology. Yeah. What are you posting oh, online? So true. And your friends are online instead of around you. So it's a completely different community. Yeah. You have people who grew up where your community was your neighbors, but now your community is online. So who is accepting me online? Yeah. And so I feel like, yeah, we are a generation of me, me, me. I'm posting about me. And in a way, that's them reaching out. We're no longer talking about Jesus Christ or the Lord on technology. At least the majority of what's being pushed is. You know, it's not. It's true. The majority of technology isn't used to spread the word of the gospel. It's being used to talk about what's going in our lives, about earthly things. And so I feel like. Yep. Yep. You know, 50 years ago, you had people talking about Christ and talking about the acceptance of Jesus Christ and not the acceptance of media and the acceptance of society. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right on. And and because and it's me versus it's me compared to somebody else and yes. it's me about me and you about you. But but even then we take it one step farther which is is it about truth or is it about this is my truth. Oh, you have your truth, I have my truth. These are different truths. But it's still me and it's still what I believe. Yeah, and I just think that's, and in a sense, we become, we we become bonded. We're in bondage, like to this, aren't we? Yeah, great point. You know, just a thought in terms of the new generation and social media. When I was YSA bishop and talking to those that were interested in going on missions, one thing that I frequently asked them is, "Okay, you want to go serve the Lord?" Yes. Now, these people that you intend to teach, 
if they make their decision about the church based on what they see when they check out your Facebook page, they would make the right decision. Oh, that's cruel. <laughs> <laughs> Way too honest. <laughs> wow. And what was the response? You know, most of them had no real response. And I would challenge them, okay, as you prepare for your mission, prepare your Facebook page to teach the message that you intend to teach as a missionary. Boy, I think that's terrific. I may have to steal that rent. <laughs> yeah. Um, for, you know, almost anybody else, right? If somebody wanted to know about the church, church through you, and I t- check out my, what's on my Facebook page, uh, I think I'm a goofball. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been teaching pathways. This is my second semester, and I teach a religious class. But the whole focus of the class is to teach the students that their life has to be Christ-centered. Yeah. Just totally centered. And I'm teaching Jesus Christ's everlasting gospel. Um, it's To me, it's a matter it's a matter of choice if that's your community. And I love you teaching that for me, that concept. Yeah, yeah. But where are we as Latter-day Saints going to stand up and say, I'm willing to stand alone? Yeah. I'm willing to let people know this is me and I'm dependent upon being obedient because yeah. that was the first law of heaven and I want to be obedient to the end because the celestial kingdom is my goal so at some point we each have to let our lights so shine that even in, in your community right. that I want to learn I want to be a part of your community but in that community I want to say yeah I, Christ is, is yeah. my total center of my life. And is that easy to do in this world? Heck no. No, that's, that's why I really like the idea, not like it, but I think it's very, very true, the idea. It's the risk of discipleship. Mm-hmm. It's the risk of being able to be truthful about things. And if we think we can do that without risk, we don't understand the nature of this thing. But right? isn't that risk worth it? If, oh, yeah. What are you willing to pay to know the Savior? I'm willing to give up everything. I'm willing to give right. everything to know him. So with that risk, are we not trying to have a generation of people that usher in the Lord? The Lord can't come. We look at the world, and I'm an old lady, and I look at the world and I say, oh my goodness, it's ready. But you know, the world is ready, but we're not ready. No, we're not. As a people, we are not ready to stand for the Savior. No, no. We're gonna, we may be forced into that, right? I just want yeah. to say one word about risk. Risk is always relative to return. Yeah, right. right. Stuff's going to return the greatest benefit. And it's it's hard to then take the risk if you don't think the return's going to be that great, or or you you have doubt you have doubts about what that return might be. If I if I'm going to take a risk and as a result I'm going to be ostracized, maybe I can't see the bigger picture. They're not looking far enough out. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think that's a good point. All right, guys, have a great summer. <laughs> Since uh, I, I, during the summer, I always miss this class. Uh, but the, the the thing will be that. But I will warn you that that gives me a summer to like do all kinds of studying and everything. So I can't even tell you what I'm going to bomb you with in the fall. <laughs> well, yeah, we're at Alma 36, so I would imagine. <laughs> 
Alma 37 is probably coming. And and 38, probably. And I would guess, and and there's probably going to be the Coriantan letters about trying to, about repentance and all of that kind of stuff. Then we're going to be back to bondage and deliverance. So, anyway, very much testimony. Thank you guys for uh, a great. great uh, year uh, it's such a blessing to to me and it uh, it gives me a spiritual lift at the beginning of every week so I'm, I'm really grateful for you guys and I leave that with you in Jesus name amen amen all right get a closing prayer yeah go ahead Brent. and thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class hope you enjoyed it If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe. Uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.